1: Hello, and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight?
0: Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself?
1: Doing well, Father. Good. Thanks for being here Good. again. Good to see you. For another week, we have, uh, of course, lots of great emails to get into, Father, The first one is uh, rather practical, so I'd like to get your response to this one from a viewer who says that raising teenagers is very difficult, uh, but especially now when modernism plagues every area of our lives. It is in the clothing, the education, the media, the music, within the workforce. Unfortunately, sometimes the children have to face it even within our own church community. So what advice would you give to parents who are trying to keep their children innocent and educated on how and why to resist modernism and to put their faith above all else? How do you keep their children from being sellouts and not rebelling when faced with human respect?
0: Well, that's a very practical question. It's actually a bunch of very practical (laughs) questions, isn't it? And, And that's a great challenge, obviously. It's one of the great challenges of being a parent. I mean, when you have the children in their early years and they still admire their parents as though they are infallible oracles of truth, justice, and so on, uh, the parents have an easier time, even even with the more difficult children. Um, Self-willed children still, I mean, there's that period of time when the child looks up to the parents so much. The parent still has quite a bit of an influence. So during the teenage years, though, uh, the parent is almost fighting for influence with the, the youngster. And, um, you know, at that point, the children are trying to assert their independence. Most of them are. Uh, some are very docile by nature. Others, not so much so, right? They're trying to assert their independence. They've discovered they have wills of their own. And um, that's when you find out whether or not all the good manners and the good habits you've tried to instill in them, when they were eight, nine, ten years old, really were virtues. Really uh, gave virtues to the souls, or whether they were just um, children being compliant, you know, because they hadn't they hadn't occurred to them not to be. Um, but by the time they get to be eleven, twelve, thirteen years old, they discover that. Uh, they uh, have wills of their own, and they can assert them. And it, it, it's, a, it's a real struggle for parents at that point to deal with them. That's why it's so, so important to teach the children uh, whatever uh, good manners and good habits uh, you can while you have them little. Uh, and they are paying attention to what you're doing, and uh, they want to imitate you. They had to set them a very good example during those early years, because when they launch into the uh, into the high school years, it, it's sort of like passing from calm water into whitewater. You know uh, it reminds me of the story of uh, some uh, people I know who uh, were going on a whitewater rafting trip years ago. They said they got him the uh, the the raft. And the, uh, the guide uh, began telling them very rapidly all the things that they had to do um, as they were just serenely floating down the river mm-hmm. as it was very calm. Right? He was rapidly trying to give a tutorial as to what they needed to do when they hit the rapids. And parents must feel kind of like that too, trying to give the children... Whatever guidance they can, so that when the rapids hit, when they're in white water, uh, class four, five, or even six white water, uh, that they can stay afloat, not get tossed out of the, not get drawn under, and so on. Uh, so essentially, this, I think, what is what our uh, writer is asking here. And of course, he's talking about something that is the hardest thing for not only parents, but any human being to do. You know, raised in fact, the, the church referred to the, the uh, raising of children as the art of arts, the art arts, uh, I'm sorry, arts artsium, I'm having a hard time, because um, my throat is dry, I'll prove that this is real water <laughs> to get okay. out here. There
1: you go, not a prop.
0: The art of arts, raising children, forming their consciences, especially. Well, essentially what this um, writer is asking is, uh, not how do I teach them math or science, or how do I teach them manner, table manners, how do I form their consciences? That's really they're asking. Mm-hmm. How do I imbue in the faith and hope and charity, right? And, um, <clears throat> well, of course, uh, the textbook answer would be, <clears throat> well, make sure they learn the doctrines of the faith. They learn the catechism. Um, uh, well, I guess I'll start with baptism. Validly <laughs> baptized, obviously, right? So, enkindle uh, in them that uh, sanctifying grace right, that God gives. So, they have that uh, they are children of God uh, for the first so many years until they reach the age of reason. Of course, they could not commit a moral fault, so they can't uh, snuff out the divine life in the soul of sanctifying grace. But when they reach the age of reason, they are able to commit mortal sins. And uh, you have to have brought them to a certain point where they, they have virtue and they want to um, um, control their passions, Uh, how do you get them to that point? Well, you have to set them a good example, obviously. You have to pray for them, and uh, you have to kind of instill them with a um, a zeal for the love of God. You have to give them the knowledge of the faith itself, Uh, give them the virtue of hope, that they place all their hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, as he is their Savior, and they love him, and that is the key. They have to love him enough so that um, when they're challenged to do something that is simple, that would betray our Lord, even venial sin, uh, as you hope that that would be the only question in the mind of a 7, 8, 9 year old child would be matters of venial sin. You would hope they would never have to deal with it, be confronted with <clears throat> a mortal sin or a question of mortal sin that they learn uh, at that time to make the moral decisions out of love for our Lord. Um, You know, there are parents who try to teach their children to be patient. Uh, There are parents who try to teach their children to be uh, kind and charitable in the way they talk about others. And if parents contradict their good lessons, verbal lessons, by their own behavior, then the children might not know how to spell hypocrisy, but they recognize it when they see it. And if the children uh, get an example from parents who who demand more of the child children that the parents than the parents are willing to give, if uh, the parents are demanding that the children be patient, while the parent that's an example of impatience and anger, um, the child is learning more from their example than he is from their words. The expression is that. Uh, Your actions speak so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. And so the parent has to not contradict what he's teaching the child, as far as a a verbal lesson, but the parent has to back that up with his own behavior, of patience, uh, of kindness. If the the, um, child sees the parent losing his temper or her temper... And lashing out in anger, at something that the child does or one of the children does or even another adult, whatever the example is, uh, that sets a very example for the child, a very bad example for the child. If the parent tells the child, you speak nice, you talk nice to your brothers and sisters, you say nice things to them, you don't call them names, you aren't mean to them. And uh, then the child hears the parent gossiping on the phone about Mrs. McGillicuddy and uh, all of her faults and just how bad she is, um, the children can pick up enough from that to recognize there's a contradiction going on. It confuses them. You know? So they need that consistency when they're little. And the consistency they need is consistency of uh, word and behavior. They also need stories to inspire their imagination. They need stories of saints. That's something that we had growing up that I don't know if a lot of the children these days have. That is, the stories of the saints' lives. The old vision books were very good, you know, for for youngsters to read. And I believe there are still many good stories out there for the children to read that inspire them with a a desire to please God, give them an example, uh, a literary example of, of somebody who is trying to practice the seven corporal and seven spiritual works of mercy. So, the parent not only has to instruct the child in being kind, but actually show them how to be kind by involving the children in performing the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. They should actually get the children involved. It takes time and effort and planning, but the parent actually can involve the child in performing works of mercy. Um, And the child can actually receive from the parent kind of coaching because, you know, the children voice to their parents problems they're having, problems they're having themselves with, you know, their homework or play or whatever, with another child at school or down the block. And the parents' coaching is very important to tell the child not just what not to do, but how to handle this in a good way, how to handle this in in a very Catholic way, in a, in a, in a way that is full of faith and hope and charity, what what good you can do. It's very important for the parent to teach the child how to handle the good things, but it's doubly important for the parent to teach the child how to handle the bad, the hard things, the difficulties, the, the challenges to, um, let's say, his own patience and his own charity, to say, well, this is what I want you to do, this is what I want you to say, this is how I want you to handle this, this is what I recommend you do. The parent has to start teaching the child how to do that with his own brothers and sisters, let alone those in his class and those, you know, on the other side of the neighborhood. Um, so the parents' coaching is, is very, very important in helping the child to know what to do to uh, address a problem and how to make it turn out better, how to, how to make things better and not make them worse. But all of this sort of is the preamble to what happens when you get to the teenage years because by the time they get to the teenage years and they have all the tumult uh, of the, the passions and, and the, not only physical changes but the emotional impact and all the rest and the relationships they have with other teenagers. You know? Now that is white water right there. And so you want them to be able to take as much as they can into those years that will help them to think clearly. You want them to begin the habit of not just reacting, but to responding, because a reaction is just out of passion, a response is out of intelligence right? and thoughtfulness, and you want to, them to be ready to do that. Okay. Um, now one might say, when I hit white water, I have to have the right reactions, and that's true. But you know you have to also have the practice of reacting that way so at least even the reaction is a matter of a response that you already thought through and you're used to knowing how to how to handle these things in a graceful way um you you need to also let the children know you know that they're entering years that are very turbulent you understand that that you've been through those years teenage years and you know that they are turbulent and uh you understand that and the child should be able to come to you without fear and just to speak to you about these things again if the child is used to coming to you and uh, you're coaching the child through successfully then there's no reason why the child can't continue doing that in the teenage years too because you have the child's confidence uh when would you lose the child's confidence when you lose your cool as it were when you lose your patience when would a parent lose his patience with a child when something the child does, or maybe even not the child, when some circumstances are such that the adult just becomes so angry or so frustrated with something that he or she forgets for a minute how much he or she loves the child. When we lash out at those we love, it's because we, we're we so aggravated or irritated or <laughs> confounded or frustrated that it's as though we forget for a moment how much we love this in this case, my son or my daughter, my 13-year-old, 14-15-year-old son or daughter, and I lash out at them. And uh, that is a very... That, that hurts, goes very deeply uh, into them um, because I guess they, they kind of sense that, you know, you've kind of reached a certain limit of love for them where you're just now frustrated, and that's all that you think about. And so you lash out at them. So it's very important to maintain your composure about that. Because they're so sensitive at that age, if they get wounded, that wound doesn't heal very well. You know, they always they go forward and they're wounded. It really does undermine a relationship uh, with the child, and makes the child want to withdraw. Now they're they're hypersensitive. Okay, we acknowledge that they're hypersensitive to that. And they're they're very willing to believe that somebody has disrespected them or treated them badly or unjustly and so on. And I realize that it's not really fair of them to react that way, but they do, okay? Because that's what they feel. And often they're really dealing with a bundle of feelings. They're dealing with a bundle of emotions there, and their consciences are trying to catch up and uh, learning how to rein those in. Their intelligence is trying to, in a sense, deal with that situation. And uh, their will is trying to gain a certain amount of control, even though they may feel like they're, they're just tumbling out of control. But this is why they really need very, very wise parents who are very patient with them. But the, uh, if there's one thing that the parent has to be able to get through to a child at that time and not lose this, is that the parent loves that child. And no matter how aggravating, frustrating, infuriating <laughs> the child's may be that the parent conveys the child that the parent loves that child and doesn't do anything to uh, sow the seeds of doubt or, or convince the child otherwise, you know because really, through all those years the the one bond that they have that can really be um the lifesaver, like the, 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 well, the lifesaver, right? You're getting white, white water, you know, you have a life vest. The one thing is that, that bond that the child has with his parent, that the child knows that the parent loves him or her, uh, that there is real love there. Because if there's one thing <clears throat> that is going to prevent the child from getting into really serious trouble during that time, and there will be temptations, uh, especially depending on the people that they associate with, is this I, I, this love that they have for their parents, this respect that they have for their parents, and they do not want to, disappointment, to disappoint them and they do not want to hurt them. Okay? Some children are so, uh, let's say, offended by the way they're treated that they almost want to hurt their parents by doing things to to make them fearful or troubled but where the child actually knows he's loved or knows she's loved and loves the parents, the greatest fear the child has, even even if the love for God itself is not strong enough yet in the child, um, or even if there is a real love for God, there's always that supplemental love also for the parents that the child does not want to hurt his parents, does not want to disappoint his parents. Quite the contrary. He or she has a very definite desire not to hurt them and not to offend them, not to disappoint them. And uh, the parent wants to use that for the child's good. This is a matter of conscience. It's a matter of forming the conscience. Now, when I say that the child needs uh, the influence of the parents at that age and they're kind of wanting to, you know, go exert their own will, Obviously, the parent is still responsible for the child. So the the parent still needs to be able to say to the child, look, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you not to do. And, um, you know, you have a curfew at this time. Be here. I'm going to be expecting you here. If you're not here, I will be very worried about you because I know you respect me and that you would not, uh, deliberately, you know, disobey me in this, so I will assume that if you're not here, something went wrong, okay? So let the child know you're counting on him to, to, to do that, and uh, let the child know that if he doesn't do that, that you're not just going to be mad, you're going to be worried. <laughs> you're going to be angry because you love them, right? And if you get angry, it's because they made you worry and uh, fear for them, um, and even your anger is, is, is out of love, But um, also, the idea that you can tell them, look, these companions are not good. I do not want you associated with these people because they're a very bad influence. And uh, this is not the right thing to do. Now, if you've raised the children as well as you could up to that point, you'd hope that the children themselves would figure that out and say, well, these companions are not good companions because they use bad language, they talk about things I would never want to talk about, they watch shows, play games that I know are wrong. And you'd want the child's own conscience at that point to say, okay, this is not where I belong, and this is not who I belong with. Um, But if you see uh, there are those who are trying to draw that child in, the parent does need to take action, and uh, even very firm action, saying, this is wrong. But it's it's one thing just to say, uh, <clears throat> Don't do this, I have spoken. Uh, the parent has a perfect right to do that, right? The parent has a perfect right to just lay down the law and say, This is the way it is. And yes, there is a place to say, Because I'm your father, that's why, or I'm your mother, that's why, right? Perfect right to do that. But actually, if you're trying to educate the child, and trying to discipline the child, which is basically educating the child, you want them to understand what you understand, that you want them to see what you see. And you want them to say, look, you want you want to be able to explain to them, look, this is my concern here. And I, I have these concerns because of what, what I've seen. I mean, these are experiences I've had. I've seen what happened to people. And I don't want it to happen to you, you know, and, uh, If you convey to the child that you don't owe them an explanation because you have authority from God, you don't owe them that explanation, but if you convey them the idea that you've raised them so that you expect that they will understand it and that they can appreciate the wisdom of it for the sake of their own instruction, it's a good idea to give them the background. And try to enable them to see what you see because that's absolutely necessary for them to grow up. Uh, To gain your perspective. To gain an adult's perspective on these things. Um, And they won't necessarily consider that a weakness. In any case, to assert the fact that you do have the authority to command them without explanation is important that they understand that. Mm -hmm. But to be able to grant them also what explanation you can for their own edification is nonetheless an important part of being a parent and helping them to acquire an adult's perspective on this i mean you know people have written books libraries worth of books on the subject you know and it might seem to people that i'm already writing my first or second volume even now but uh the fact is uh i haven't raised teenagers but in a sense i have uh, because I've been involved in Catholic education for a few years now, and um, always with teenagers, mm-hmm. and um, I, I just find that they are they are striving for respect, self esteem, no, self respect. They need self respect, and to um, to be able to uh, you know give them the, the groundwork for self respect. Uh, is is extremely important these days. Uh, the world doesn't do that. The world tears them down and says they're just nothing but glorified amoebas, or paramecia that have just evolved uh, with you know no rhyme or reason to them. The Marxist socialist tells them they're nothing but economic animals. The whole society we live in uh, wants to degrade not just them but everybody. But although the world today would tend to glorify the wildness. Of the teenagers, right? Um, as Father Becca pointed out, uh, actually more than sixty years ago now. Um, that's the modern world, because uh, it, mo- it the modern world glorifies rebelliousness. Um, and so, when the teenager hears that, well, that unfortunately, hearkens to, you know, the idea of not being subject to anyone or anyone's authority. But there's love, though, where there's a genuine love, where the child grows up to actually love his parents. Uh, You find those parents never lose their authority. They still have it, even during a child's years when he's torn the most to assert himself and assert his own will and uh, discover for himself uh, the pitfalls of the world, um, there, will, there will always be a bond there that will enable the, the parent, hopefully, to keep the child out of serious trouble or to help the child get out of serious trouble. <laughs> imagine, imagine going through life and raising a child <coughs> until he gets to be 16, 17, 18 years old and a parent saying to himself, I cannot trust my son. I can't trust my daughter. That's a terrible thing. You've had all those years to build up that trust. And you get to that point point, you realize you've got a 17-year-old boy or a 17-year-old girl and you feel, I cannot trust them. And when I ask, well, why? why do you think that is? And they might answer, well, because they're so strong-willed, they're running with these friends, they do what they want, they pay no attention. But the fundamental answer is, they don't love me. They don't respect me enough. To hearken to what I say when I, when I tell them things that, that you know, I want, I want to keep them out of harm's way. I want to protect them. I want them to, to prosper, you know, not falter. I want them to have uh, prosperity and not adversity. I want to keep them out of serious trouble um, for their own sake. I want to get them through this turbulent period of life. Um, they don't respect me enough, though, because they don't, they don't hearken to me when they wreck. you know, as though I'm just trying to control their lives. And uh, somewhere along the line, I, I guess either that, that child, because there's still a child, has never learned to love, because, I mean, children n- need to learn to love, right? Everyone does. Something we learn Either the child has never learned to love himself or herself, or the child doesn't recognize uh, the parents' love for him or her. So um, then, you know, I keep coming back in my mind to the fact the person said, "Well, how, how do you how do you keep the faith full? I mean, learning the mysteries, learning the doctrines of the faith." You have seven, eight, 19-year-olds who could ace their religion tests. They know the catechism perfectly. They know the catechism questions and answers perfectly. They can recite the questions and answers perfectly to you. But uh, that doesn't mean that they are going to be faithful. That, that involves love for our Lord. That involves the love for God. That's really the lesson they had to learn. That's what they have to learn Uh, by the time they get in the the teenage years, you have to have taught them what love means and what authority means. They have to learn the meaning of those two words. And they begin learning the meaning of love and authority from the earliest days, from the days they're delivered in the maternity, maternity war, they're placed into your arms, whatever. That's when they begin to learn what love and authority really are. And you'd hope that by the time they got to be and in the teenage years, they have a very good foundation in knowing what those two things really are. And uh, you want them to love not only their parents and their siblings, you want them to love their Lord, Jesus Christ. That is really a matter of growing up in a home where there is love, where they are loved. Some parents think that... Um, That comes naturally to us, if you can keep them out of the world and shelter them from the world. It doesn't. There are parents who have sheltered their children all of their lives and they find out that their children uh, turn out very differently. Some turn out very selfishly, some turn out very uh, generously and very lovingly and they each have their own personalities. They might have tried to raise all the children the same way they can't, because each one of them is, is different, is unique. <clears throat> and uh, there are others who raise their children, but they, they do it differently. They raise them in a Catholic home, and they don't try to shelter them from everything, which is impossible, because, you know, there's the world and the flesh and the devil. And, yeah, okay, you can try to shield them from the world, but there's still the flesh and there's still the devil. And you can't exactly sequester them from that influence. So, the key, really, is not to lock them in a box or wrap them in bubble wrap you know, until they get to be 21 years old. The key is to raise them, yes, in the world, but not of the world. And uh, to make the home a kind of haven. And yes, they will venture out of their homes, and yes, they will see things that are not right. They'll hear things that are not right. Uh, But what you're trying to do when they see or hear these things is get them to have the right response to these things, to recognize these things are wrong. This person is immodestly dressed. That music, right, is impure. That joke, right, they're using bad language here. And you want to teach them to respond to these things in the correct way, that's the only way you can form their consciences. You can't form their consciences, really, by wrapping them in bubble wrap and then unwrapping unwrapping them when they're 21 years old. You have to form their consciences almost like it's a battleground, right? This is the church militant, and they're members of the church militant by baptism. And yes, they have to do some fighting. And yes, maybe they have to, you know, uh, draw some fire and get some wounds and bleed a little bit, get on their feet again. But, you know, you have to be able to Warm their consciences with a certain toughness, and you have to shelter them to some extent, but you can't shelter them utterly. They have to be exposed to things, to other human beings. Okay, and um, but again, you want those to be controlled circumstances, especially in the early years, as much as possible so that the parents can direct the child's thoughts in the, in the right way. What are we to think about this? How are we supposed to see this? How should we respond to this? You want the parents to be the ones, as I say, coaching the child through all of those times. Um, and um, if, you, uh, if you raise the child with love, and you re- raise the child with a certain cheerfulness and joyfulness, um, then the child is going to learn to love his faith. The child is going to see his Catholic faith and his Catholic religion as a, a joyful thing, as a labor of love. Right? If you raise the child with uh, uh, anger and you raise the child with um, uh, just um, kind of the, the very heavy hand, and you raise the child in a certain loveless and chaotic atmosphere, the child all too often is going to grow up and very bitter. And when they do encounter someone who seems to have a certain joy in life, uh, whether it be a Protestant friend or whatever, the child is rather going to be gravitating toward that, going to be drawn to that. So it's very important that in the home, at least, there is an atmosphere of the true Catholic faith, um, of faith and hope and charity and all the virtues that come from it. And the child sees, okay, this is the way we live at home. And this is the way people live outside my home. Right? This is the way Catholic people live in their homes. This is what they have in their homes. This is what they don't have in their homes. This is the way they treat each other. And it's very good, it's very loving, it's very kind. I want that. I go out in the world, I see people are angry and mean and nasty all too often, right? And you don't find the faith in our Lord out there. You don't find hope in him, you don't find love in him. It's a very cold place. And you you give them the choice that ultimately they're going to have to make. Which is the way I want to live? Which is the way I want to live? <clears throat> and uh you know what do I want to hope for? What do I want to love? well, you've only got so many years to instill that in them. It's a big job. Have I said anything? actually no, I haven't even scratched the surface yet. Tell me uh you're going to be raising teenagers uh, in the years ahead. Tom, what do you think of all
1: this? <laughs> I agree with everything you said father <laughs> i'm uh, I'm over here taking copious notes actually so this is oh this are is you really I, uh, well, yes, 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 it's wonderful father I, I think it might be. But perhaps providential that we're talking about this during this time. Um, Today is the the feast day of St. Monica, Monica, obviously a great um, patron for all Catholic mothers and and fathers, all all parents. Yesterday we just had the feast day of the finding of the Holy Cross with St. Helen, certainly another example of a great Catholic mother. But, um, you know, you mentioned how important uh, these stories of the lives of the saints are for the children. Um, Would you say that's true for for parents as well? I mean, we have St. Monica, St. Helen. Are there other um, great Catholic parents, who who you would recommend uh, um, that we would cultivate a devotion to? Uh, are there any specific spiritual exercises that you would recommend for Catholic parents?
0: Well, Saint John Bosco's mother is a t- truly, uh, you know, an example for uh, parents to follow, especially moms, right? And uh, the the parents of uh, Saint Teresa of is you, Saint Teresa the Child Jesus, just exemplary and the. And providing a Catholic home mm-hmm. for their children, there was great love there, and uh, it showed in all their offspring. Right, they grew up to love mightily. But uh, there are so many stories of uh, of great Catholic saints who are raised in Catholic homes. Even even reading, even reading the early childhood uh, stories of the great saints, brings you in contact with their home life. And that would all be very helpful for parents to know. So, you have, let's say you have a five or six or seven year old child, or even an eight or nine year old child who can read. But you sit down with them and you read with them. That's very important. You know, even when the child can read for himself or herself, there's a certain fluency and a certain expression that comes when they hear a parent or a teacher read to them a story. When the child is reading, they're concentrating often on the mechanics of the story, you know. It goes kind of slowly and they can lose a lot of the meaning, basically, the story. They can lose the storyline, trying to work out the mechanics, the phonics and all. Important to know, certainly, but nonetheless, uh, the mechanics are not the reason for the story. It's the storyline that is important. So, when a parent sits down with a child, and reads with the child, and the child can actually read along with the parent, that is really very important for the child's ability to, to read fluently, and to read it not just as, as words, sentences that are connected, but as the actual story. And as parents do that, they are they're learning a lot too. They're picking up a lot, more than their own son or daughter, probably. The last uh, Saturday we had our first communions here that 20 children received their First Communion. And it was very beautiful, always, you know, a lot of graces from God, from heaven there, and a great deal of joy. I hope that it's sustained throughout their lives, especially uh, due to the love of our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. But afterwards, people were telling me that they liked my sermon. I don't hear that very often. <laughs> really, <laughs> That people told me that they liked my sermon because it was so easy to understand. And one uh, young man even commented, a young father, that I should always direct my sermons to the (laughs) seven-year-olds for the benefit of the adults. (laughs) Um, Well, I wasn't so sure how successful I was at that either because I'd found out immediately after that statement that one young girl thought that I had said that St. John married the Blessed Mother. Oh, no. Yes. Uh, in my sermon. So maybe I need to go Apparently. more like the five or four-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Just the nuts. But you know, I, I hope that didn't spread too far, because uh, you can go back and check the record, though. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I mean, those misunderstandings happen, you know. Uh, someone coughs, they miss a word, and yeah, you know, can change the meaning, uh, perfectly understandable. but. <laughs> When I, when I asked uh, why, why it was different or why they appreciated that, and it, it wasn't just the subject matter, it was when I was giving the sermon, I was directing it, you know, my articulating the words and speaking at the pace that I would for a seven year old child. Mm-hmm. And the, it, was, it was very easy for everyone to follow. You know, if somebody gets up and gives a, a discourse. Um, it may be very hard to follow, you know, especially when it goes on for, oh ten 10 minutes. I've, I've been known to go on for 10, 12 minutes at a time. Really? Yes, actually. Wow. But, uh, but you know, when you're talking with little children, um, you're speaking slowly and distinctly, and, you know, you're phrasing it so that it, it comes in little bites. And, yeah, I can see why people would find that to be much more digestible, so to speak, um, and that's why I, I certainly recommend that moms and dads take that time to read the stories, especially the stories of the saints. It's fine to read the stories of the rabbits and the frogs, the bears, and so on, uh, because of what they symbolize and allegories about truthfulness and honesty and generosity and all the rest. But what we really need is to graduate from those then uh, in the like two and three year olds, to start to move. But four and five-year-olds into the stories and the lives of the saints, and uh, they can appreciate what saints do and how they think. You know, mm-hmm. how they respond to the things happening to them, the predicaments, because the same predicaments that happened to the saints when they were four and five and six years old are predicaments that are happening to our, to our own children going growing up in our own families, yes. and when parents are reading these stories with them, the parents are not learning how the. The parents of saints had the least problems, but the children are also learning from the examples of the children, how they address these problems, too. Extremely important to give them these stories. Extremely important to give them these examples when they're young.
1: Mm-hmm. Are there any uh, specific spiritual exercises that you would recommend for Catholic parents?
0: Well, I do recommend that they pray the rosary, of course. I mean, you know, when couples first get married, they don't have children, they. Are much freer to organize their time around the rosary, and when I say that, I mean it exactly that way. They should schedule their rosary, and everything else has to adjust around it. Too many young people today—well, not all young people—organize uh, organize their days around everything else, and they have the attitude: "Well, you know, if I have time, I'll squeeze a rosary in at the end." But they never have time. Um, well, they always run out of time because everything else is a higher priority, right? And so they always leave that to the last possible thing. Well, then they're treating God worse than they treat their own dog, as I've said. Because, you know, people always find time to feed the dog. right? No matter how busy they are, somebody's going to feed the dog. And I don't mean to like, liken this matter to, you know, praying the rosary, but the fact is, the dog in some ways does get priority over God. That they'll find the time to feed the dog, but they won't find the time to pray the rosary everything else takes priority and that's not that's not catholic that's not a way to raise a child certainly it's a raised way to raise your own soul certainly that's a way to take care of your spouse you married this person to help them save their souls and you need them to have virtues to be your wife or your husband you need to pray for them and you need to pray with them obviously so that should be a priority how important should it be? Well, how important is it to have breakfast, lunch, or supper? Any of those meals? How important is it to brush your teeth? How is it important it to wash, to comb your hair? Well, now with people working at home nowadays, I, I don't know what they're doing. You know, if they're doing any of these things. <clears throat> but the fact is, to be presentable to others, we we undertake certain um, modifications. Um, and find it necessary to maybe comb our home, comb our hair, shave, nothing personal, uh, Sorry. <laughs> do various other things that make us presentable in society. I mean, after all, the Speaker of the House Ashley was so concerned about others around her that she went and had her hair done clandestinely, right under the radar. I'm very charitable, and I mean, she was just thinking of us, right? She didn't want to appear looking like a fright in front of everyone. <clears throat> And uh, I'm being facetious there, obviously. Okay. But, um, you know, when it comes down to the most important thing that they need to do each day during their soul, for their soul's sake and for their family's sake, to pray that rosary, uh, they, they not only don't prioritize it, they, they, they actually they almost uh, put it on the lowest rung, even if it's, if it, it might not even be off, it, off the bat entirely. It might even not even be on the radar, you know. It's like, oh, if I think about it, I'll get around to it. That's a terrible thing. Um, that's an, an insult to the Blessed Mother. It's an insult to our Lord who sent her to ask us to give just that fifteen minutes a day to, um, you know, recount the events of His life and Her life together, um, to pray the Gospel. You know. So, in any case, I would say. Pray the rosary. Now, some might have children who come along and they they have them as tiny infants and they they can't pray the rosary. They get to the age where maybe they can be present. I mean, have the child present there while you pray the rosary. Even the little baby, let the baby fall asleep while you're praying the rosary. When the time comes that the child can, can actually say, prattle out the words of the Our Father and Hail Mary, Let the child prattle out the words as long as he or she is capable before falling asleep or whatever. Um, And uh, when the child's old enough to kneel with you, fine, let them pray a decade of the rosary, then put them to bed and finish the rosary. Don't demand that they kneel up straight and tall when they're three years old or four years old and pray the 15 uh, 15 decades of the rosary. Uh, you're expecting a bit too much, and you're going to make it an ordeal for them, and they will want no part of it. They, they will they will, not have got any memories of this. But let them also realize that it's part of being a grown-up, that the older they get, the more mature they get, the more they're able to stay up, the more they're able to kneel up and pray the rosary, or even sit back and pray the rosary, but pray the rosary that they can stay up, because children want to stay up. They don't want to be put to bed. So if they realize, oh, you know, the more I show I'm grown up, more grown up, and I can actually join in the family rosary, then, you know, my mommy and daddy will let me stay up, you know. And they'll consider that to be kind of a reward rather than a punishment. Um, But when the child begins to weaken or or, or fall asleep, let the child fall asleep. You can have them get ready for bed first and then join you and then let them be ready. You can just carry them in and put them in bed if they fall asleep during the rosary. But don't torture them. Um at least that's how they'll take it. But the point is you want the children to grow up with the rosary. You want them to grow up with the idea the rosary is priority. You want them to take that forward. You want them to take that forward into their teenage years. That they that they think of the rosary as a priority in their life and they wouldn't miss it for anything. Uh, and if they did, that they would feel badly about it. They missed something important. You want them to feel that way when they get into their teenage years. How do you get them to that point unless you've raised them with the rosary as a staple of life, right? Um, And you want them then to take it with them into their college years, certainly, and into their married years when they're raising their own family. You have to set that example for them now. What you want them doing, what you want your son or daughter to be doing 20 years from now, you have to be doing that with them now. You have to tell them this is your priority if you ever want to, them to think of it as their priority. And if you don't, what right do you have to expect that it will be a priority to them if it's not a priority with you now? So you're setting their priorities right now. And uh, it's a big job. Heaven knows. But you set those priorities in the first 10 years or 12 years, and uh, you've given the, the very best hope you can that They'll negotiate those class six water rapids and come through the other end, and they'll be fine.
1: Father, mm-hmm. something else that uh, perhaps you would recommend as a as a way to solve a lot of family problems, family issues, would be the enthronement to the Sacred Heart. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure there's lots, lots that could be said on that, but just briefly, mm-hmm. how, how important is that, Father, to a Catholic family?
0: Well, it's extremely important to uh, consecrate the family to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Again, it sets a... It sends a message to all the children. It's a very solemn act. Uh, it doesn't take long, right? The prayers, but the consecration of the family is very important for the child to see the mother and the father there making the consecration and declaring our Lord Jesus Christ to be the king of their home. Again, this is part of making the home like a Catholic haven for the child. So, whatever else is. Whatever other hurricane, tornado, cyclone is blowing outside the walls of that home, the child enters the home, and it's like heaven. <laughs> it's like the Garden of Eden. Everything is peaceful, calm, and loving. Right? And um, it's part of that, consecrating the home to the Sacred Heart and declaring our Lord to be the King of that home. The parents actually tell the child, look, the authority we have over you is from God. It's for our Lord, Jesus Christ. That's the authority that we we have. We speak for Him. And uh, hopefully that will accomplish two things. One, it will increase the child's respect for our Lord as the star- source of all authority in that home. But it will also increase the child's respect for his own parents' authority that they are speaking for God when they, what they do what they do, that they have the responsibility from God to care for those children and the authority necessary to exercise that responsibility. So, um, it also draws many, obviously, many graces and blessings down in that family from heaven. and um, The family is supposed to uh, incorporate that prayer of consecration from then on, at least every Sunday. They are supposed to be drawn together in prayer, at least every Sunday drawn together in prayer, and re- repeat the prayer of consecration of the family. So again, it's something that the the, the entire family grows up with. The mom and the dad and the parents and the, and the children all grow up with this together, year by year, week by week, even day by day. Um, they're supposed to renew that consecration every time they pray the family rosary. They don't necessarily pray the entire prayer of consecration again, but they do make a point of, of renewing intentionally, that enthronement of our Lord in their home as, as king, um, and that, that, that is their pledge that there be nothing that take place in that home that would be contrary to the will of our Lord that would be displeasing to him. Tell the children that you know when they treat each other badly when they're fighting over the toys or whatever now you know we consecrated our home to the sacred Heart of jesus here he's the king of our home and certainly the king would not want you to be doing this you know to each other but again even in those times parents can be tempted to say stop that stop that stop that i don't do that don't do that don't do that whereas actually i mean the parent could say okay what happened why are you fighting And Tommy could say, Well, Petunia took my toy car and she wouldn't give it back, and blah, 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 blah. You know, they have the story. And uh, the parent has an opportunity to say, Not only, Well, don't do this and don't do that. But the parent has the opportunity to say, "Uh, Now listen, okay, these things will happen, okay? But this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to handle it. And the parent, who's older and wiser, of course, can spell out for little Tommy. This is what I want you to do if this happens again. Okay. This is how I want you to handle it. I don't want you to get into a fight with your sister. I don't want you to hit her. I don't want you to get into a tug of war with her. It'll break your toy or whatever. If this happens, this is how I want you to handle it. all right I want you to come and let me know, and I will take care of it. And I will tell Petunia, you know, that she can't do that, and um, I will deal with it, you know, other ways. But the point, the point is though. That the parent can't just be barking at the child all the time. Don't do this. Don't do that. Because there are a thousand things you don't want the child to do, and you can't go through all thousand things saying, "Don't do this. Don't do that." The real focus is, "What do I want you to do about this?" Positively, how do I want you to handle it? And this, I'm giving you instructions now exactly how I want you. To, to handle these situations, and I want you to listen carefully and follow exactly what I say, and I guarantee you things will turn out much better. So, uh, you know, when you consecrate the home to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and you say, he's the king here, and you come, and you, you know, uh, as his, his representative in the home, and you're explaining these things to the children, well, hopefully, you know, that... Uh, Gives you a certain status. <laughs> um, um, just being be, old, beyond being merely older and wiser, bigger and stronger, that gives you a moral status that you're speaking for our Lord, right? Because let's face it, as a parent, you are. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, Father, perhaps we can end with that. I know we had other topics that we wanted to get into, oh, but goodness, uh, huh? I don't think our viewers will object if we put those emails on the shelf for another week. I know well, I,
0: they, they probably reluctantly let us go. <laughs> I think
1: so. I know I, I personally am very pleased with the direction this program took, Father. I have uh, thought of lots of useful information there. So oh, I,
0: well, I hope so, Dan. Thank,
1: thank you for that. I appreciate it. And oh, you're
0: very welcome. I hope it's some better. December. I thank you for your patience and everything. <laughs> no
1: December. problem, Father. Thank you. appreciate it. God bless you.
0: Well, God bless you, Tom. Thank you. And all of our viewers, too. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Thanks to all all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.